Welcome to the Turkey Hunter Podcast with me, your host, Andy Galliano. In this podcast, I share with turkey hunters just like you how to have more turkeys on your hunting property and how to have more successful turkey hunts. I teach you how to do this with tips and interviews with turkey hunting pros, wildlife management tips, and entertaining turkey hunting stories. Tune in weekly as I share proven and simple strategies to help you have more success this turkey season. Make sure to head over to www.iamturkeyhunting.com to subscribe to receive free turkey hunting tips, tactics, strategies, and product reviews. Also, please visit and like my Facebook fan page. Go to Facebook and search I Am Turkey Hunting, and also feel free to post your turkey hunting photos from this past season and let us know where and when you killed your bird. For all of you Twitter users out there, please follow me on Twitter, where my handle is at turkeyhitman, and I will be sure to follow you back. And now, for this week's show. Hello and welcome back to this week's episode of the Turkey Hunter Podcast. We are 15 days, 0 hours, 15 minutes, and 53 seconds away from opening day of alligator season in Alabama. And if you listened to last week's show, you know that I drew a tag to hunt alligators in the southwest zone of the state, which includes all or part of five counties. So in order to get my tag, I had to go to South Alabama for a class this weekend. So I rode to South Alabama to Spanish Fort with my sister-in-law and niece and nephew. They were going down there to visit family, and I rode down there with them, went to a two-hour class taught by Chris Nix, who is an Alabama wildlife and freshwater fisheries biologist and the alligator program coordinator for the state as well. The class was very well done. Now, Chris has had some practice doing the class. This is their, I think, ninth year or so, or tenth year, something like that. And so Chris has done the class several times, and in order to get your tag, you have to attend the class. So it was very interesting to learn all about the alligators and the alligator hunt, about the process of the hunt, and the steps to maintain legality while hunting alligator in the state of Alabama. So I'd like to thank Chris Nix for a job well done and a very informative and educational two-hour class that he taught. And I am looking forward very much to the hunt. Like I said last week, I put in for a tag every year except for one, and this year I finally drew. So with all of that being said, we are 229 days, 9 hours, 14 minutes, and 44 seconds away from opening day of turkey season. So I have a great show for you guys today. Before we get into it, you know, I usually do some housekeeping. Well, today, instead of doing a little housekeeping, I've got something I want to read to you. I want to read a couple of pages from a book. These couple of pages are related to today's show, but the author really does a great job of describing a turkey hunt that he went on. So I'm going to read this for you. starts out, I remember an incident that occurred when I was 12 years old. My eyes burned from getting only a few hours of sleep 
I am slightly nauseated from eating a greasy breakfast at 4 a.m. Sitting alone in an inky, damp darkness, I am pulled by nagging feelings of anticipation and fear. Propped against a tree I cannot see, in a forest totally unknown to me, I can hear my heart beating loudly as I consider the possibilities that the sunrise may hold. I have doubts. I may do the wrong thing, make the wrong move, disappoint my father and his friends, or be forever lost in this dark forest. I am alone in some deep North Florida forest, an hour's drive through the night in a direction I have never been, deposited here by my father in the chilly morning darkness of early March. There is a forest of contingencies also, and my mind swims hopelessly lost in this thick blackness that envelops me. I fear that I am not ready for all of this, and regret having nagged and pleaded, hoped and prayed to be here. For me, this is very important. This is not sitting next to my father in a duck boat. This is not a late afternoon cornfield with my father watching me from a nearby pecan tree. This is me, alone in a big forest, by myself in the dark, with a loaded shotgun across my lap. I have listened carefully. I have studied. I have imagined every scenario my mind will permit. As my father's footsteps disappeared into the darkness, I tried to review everything I need to remember. Gradually, I begin to see the dim silhouette of limbs against the sky. I see that I am in a mature forest of very large trees whose leaves have not returned from the winter. A faint illumination softens the mantle of blackness that has covered me. Birds begin making scolding noises that seem to express regret at having their blanket of darkness rolled back. At last I can see myself and am reassured that I exist beyond the limits of my apprehensions. The suffocating blackness is replaced by a strange presence. I can feel it as it presses against me and accompanies the cool air into my eyes and chest. Shivering slightly, I see my camouflage clothing, but this vaporous presence makes me feel uncovered and vulnerable as it saturates me. My eyes water, and my face becomes tight as I squint through the pre-dawn mist. The sky begins to glow slightly in the east. The sun must be rising. I remain in a vicious soup of undifferentiated blues and grays as the first signs of real color begin to appear across the sky. A wash of cool air moves across my face as though flushed from its hold on the forest floor. It moves into the trees briefly as if the world has been startled into taking its first breath. More birds begin to peep and chatter around me. I am consoled by the familiar voice of a cardinal. Spring peepers, which I also recognize, begin a chorus below me. The forest slowly awakens with life. A crow sounds in the distance. Startled, startled, I wonder how so much life and energy could have remained so well hidden around me. I try to remember what my purpose is here. I'm supposed to try to lure a wary and elusive inhabitant of this forest to me without allowing myself to be seen. I feel clumsy and conspicuous. I strain to see through this mist that hides the base of the more distant trees. My father assured me that the creature lives in this very wood, and I try to imagine what he would look like slowly moving through this area. I struggle to hear. I think I understand what he should sound like, but I do not really know. A kaleidoscope of sound reverberates around me. A woodpecker pounds a hollow tree in the distance, and briefly, I wonder if that could be the sound, but I know it is not. A golden glow bathes the uppermost limbs of the tallest trees. Another pulse of air stirs and pulls a shiver from somewhere deep inside me. I try to remain motionless. I know the rules. I remember what I have been told. I remember my turkey collar. 
quietly, I remove it from my pocket. My hands are clumsy from the chill, but the cedar wood and slate of the collar feel familiar and reassuring. As with a musical instrument, I have practiced and rehearsed, and this is my debut. I nervously crawl out faint white circles on the thin slab of slate framed in my palm. I am startled by the sound it produces. It cuts through the air like a rude, sharp stick. Exposed and embarrassed, I put away the yelper and try to be inconspicuous. I strain to perceive some sort of acknowledgement, but hear only a squirrel jump to the ground and run a short distance. Eventually, my courage returns, and I retrieve my collar and try once more. Again, I am shocked by the unpleasantness of the sound and how foolish it makes me feel. I replace the collar in my coat pocket, knowing well that any creature within a mile has surely been frightened away. The forest quiets. The excitement of dawn has settled into an alert stillness. I press my back into the tree in an effort to become a part of it. I hear something walking some distance directly behind me. Judging by the sound, it must be very large. It seems to be coming towards me, rapidly at first, and then more slowly as it nears. My heart quickens. It could be a fox or even a deer. I want to turn and look, but I know to remain motionless. As this woodland prowler draws near, its pace slows and I can hear individual footsteps in the dry leaves of the forest floor. It has weight as it sinks through the mulch. Small twigs give way and snap. As I become aware of the heavy, slow, and deliberate cadence of two feet, it occurs to me that I am being approached by a person. The person seems to be carefully stalking. Another turkey hunter must be here. Instinctively, I remain still, afraid to identify myself to this stranger. I wonder if it could be my father searching for me, even though he left in the opposite direction. But surely he would not return so soon. The person very slowly walks up behind me, perhaps only 20 feet away, and stands still. I can feel his eyes on the tree that separates us. I can feel his ears as he listens for the sound of my heart beating. I am certain that he knows I am here. It must be my father, but I am afraid to move. A very long time seems to pass without a sound, and I begin to wonder if the person could have walked away without my knowing. I start to slowly turn my head and strain my eyes to see peripherally, but I am afraid to look. Then another movement in the leaves, and he moves one step closer. He definitely knows that I am here. It is as though I am being stalked. Suddenly, I am surrounded by a wondrous sound that seems to originate from the earth itself. I am enveloped by a single resonating pulse from some enormous drum that I can feel within. It is more of a pressure in my chest than a sound in my ears. I absorb its ascending vibration like a sponge, overcome with the knowledge that the stranger that produced this remarkable sound could not be human. I am paralyzed as this creature seems to observe me through the tree. I feel his inquiry, his consciousness, on the back of my neck. Behind me is a profound presence, something powerful and apprehensive, like the cocked hammer of a gun. He takes a couple of short, careful steps and once again becomes motionless, looming only a few feet behind me. When eventually he takes several more cautious steps, I realize that he's moving away. He stops several times, and I can sense his scrutiny. Then his footsteps disappear slowly into the forest. My breath returns. Something has been drawn from me, and I am left very cold. I never saw that great bird on that cool spring morning, but he inadvertently shared something important with me, and I would never be the same. A wild turkey had changed my life. That is one of my favorite passages from Illumination in the Flatwoods by Joe Hutto. Joe is my guest on today's show. Joe is a naturalist, an author, and an artist. 
According to Google, a naturalist is an expert in the research and study of organisms, including plants and animals, in their environment, leaning more towards observational than experimental methods of study. As we get into today's interview, you're going to see that that is a fantastic description of Joe Hutto. He is an expert in the research and study of wild turkeys. Not just wild turkeys, but lots of animals and lots of plants as well. And he does study them in their environment. You see, in 1991, Joe was living in Florida, and he had two people bring him two clutches of turkey eggs from nests that were destroyed while bush hogging fields. Joe put the eggs in an incubator and began his experiment of imprinting and raising wild turkeys. He spent almost every daylight hour for two years with his flock of turkeys, observing, communicating, taking notes, teaching, and being taught. He turned his notes into a book entitled Illumination in the Flatwoods, which is, in my opinion, the Bible of wild turkey behavior. Joe's book was made into a documentary by Nature and broadcast on PBS. The show is entitled My Life as a Turkey and can still be found online. Now, I'll actually post a link to the show on PBS on my website, and you can find that link at www.iamturkeyhunting.com slash myLifeAsAturkey. The documentary won three Emmys. Now, I'm not much into the award shows, but a documentary that wins three Emmys has to be pretty dang good. This documentary is exceptional. Now, I highly recommend that you read the book, Illumination in the Flatwoods, and then watch the documentary. Both are excellent. I'm going to provide a link to the book on my website as well. The link to the book will be on the same page that the link to the PBS documentary will be on. Again, that's www.iamturkeyhunting.com slash myLifeAsAturkey. If you guys have not purchased and read the book, then this is one you really need to check out. Now, in this episode of the show, I'm going to ask Joe some questions about the behavior of wild turkeys, as well as some questions about his personal experience with his flock of turkeys. So, it's a rather long interview. I don't want to waste any more of your time. Let's get right into the interview, and I will see you guys on the other side. Hey, everybody. I am very excited to have on the line with me someone that I have wanted to interview for quite some time. I first read this gentleman's book many years ago when a turkey hunting buddy of mine called me and said, you have to read this book that I just bought. I have finished it in a day, and... I will bring it to you, and you're welcome to read my copy of it, and you're just not going to believe the story. So I meet him for lunch, and he hands me a copy of Illumination in the Flatwoods by Joe Hutto. And it probably took me two or three days to finish it, and was just completely blown away by the fact that someone would actually go through with an experiment to imprint themselves on young wild turkeys. And the story of this is just amazing. Like I said, I've been wanting to get Joe on the line. I finally tracked him down somewhere in the wilds of Wyoming, hanging out with some mule deer. And I have Joe on the line with me today. Joe, how are you and where are you? Well, hello. It's good to be here. I'm 
a few miles south of Lander, Wyoming, which is sort of western central part of the state, right on the uh, edge of the eastern slope of the Wind River Mountains. And okay. I'm sitting here on my front porch in my little ranch and got a mama mule deer literally uh, trying to get up <laughs> in my lap. Um, <laughs> so things are going well here. It's a beautiful day. And uh pleasure to be with you, by the way. Well, I thank you very much for taking time to do the interview with me. And you have been nothing but gracious since I first called you. And I just, I appreciate that. So I'm really excited to have you on the phone because as I mentioned to you before the recording, I've read the book many times. And I think that it offers just such a great insight to the wild turkey. Nothing like we've ever anyone's ever seen before or read before and it just really was eye-opening for me so i'm very excited to have you on the line well, so I, a, I appreciate it's you. a privilege to be here and i always enjoy talking about wild turkeys it's certainly one of my favorite subjects yeah well for those people who are listening to the show who have not read the book or seen the show the documentary my life as a wild turkey which is on pbs mm-hmm. tell us a, just a little bit of the background of what happened, how we got to this point. I'm sure there's some people that don't know what imprinting is. I didn't before I read the book the first well, time. So, well, yeah, sure. Imprinting is just the process whereby a young animal comes to recognize its parent and, and, and to some degree even its species, and particularly in precocial birds like chickens and quail and grouse and pheasants and wild turkeys. They're born fully alert and ambulatory. They feed themselves, and hence the name precocial. And those birds, they're not fed by their parent. They're, those are altricial birds, ones that are dependent on the parent. And so they're born, and they immediately start feeding themselves. The mother takes them away from the nest. And in those particular kinds of birds, they immediately have to find out who they are and where they are, who mom is, and immediately get oriented. And and the means by which they do that is called imprinting. And so they come out of the out of the shell, and immediately the first thing they see and hear, they identify as their parent. Mm-hmm. And I had experimented with that many times in the past. And and and, and so the, this mechanism in these precocial animals, like ducks, geese, and these quail-like, turkey-like animals, it happens really fast. And I had not only had experience with this myself, but I'd I'd studied other researchers' observations, and in particular, Lovett Williams, a great turkey biologist from Florida, mm-hmm. he actually did an imprinting study, I think back in the 60s, and he observed by putting microphones in the nests of wild of nesting wild turkeys. He observed that these hens were making conversation with their eggs, actually. And yeah. Lovett correctly assumed that that was in an effort to familiarize these these young turkeys before they actually hatch. So immediately upon hatching, all she had to do was make her hen-like noise that she had been making to these eggs, and the, and these poults would immediately know that oh, that's mom, and now I see her, now I see her eyes, we're good to go. And so uh, so I took advantage of that imprinting opportunity with the, the turkeys, and and it became you know two-year dedication. Yeah. When did you decide that you first wanted to try this experiment on wild turkeys? You've done it before in the past, like you said, on other animals. Mm-hmm. But when did you decide that you'd want to try this with wild turkeys? Well, 
I've, I've always worked with wildlife since I started doing this actually when I was a kid and experimenting with, well, I wouldn't call it experimenting. I would say it was an obsession. I just wanted to catch every young animal I could because I discovered this phenomenon when I was a little kid and there was something magical about it. And I found that if I got a young animal and had this imprinting experience with it, and certainly occurs with mammal too, just a little more, that something extraordinary happened. And suddenly there I was. And so instead of uh, having a, a human-animal relationship where an animal is terrified genetically of a, of a human, uh, I had this relationship with an animal and uh, an intimate relationship. And, and immediately I recognized that because of that proximity, because of that intimacy, that they would reveal things to you that a wild animal would never reveal. Reveal if, say, for example, you're sitting on a hillside or in a tree stand with a pair of binoculars. You you can make observations about animal behavior, but but they won't really. Re- you'll never observe the real intimate behaviors, the real subtle behaviors. You know that that's something right. that not only you observe, but they actually share with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you? have to get any kind of special permission from the state of Florida where this experiment took place before you actually restarted everything? Yes, I did. Well, one of the uh, strange things about doing what I do is that you can't choreograph it. You know, well, in some cases, uh, I I said, well, I'm going to raise crows. And Mm -hmm. I would go out and find a crow's nest and literally rob the nest and get a, a young crow. But typically what happens is it's opportunistic. These animals turn up by whatever means. Somebody discovers a nest, there's an orphan, a mother gets hit in the road, and someone says, here, you know, here's a two-day-old gray fox. Do you want it? Well, of course I do. But it's not something that I could plan for. And -hmm. and that happened. Uh, And uh, I had... Fabulous experience with a fox. It lasted a couple of years, but it was, you know, it was not something that I could foresee. And it was that way with the turkeys. And so it was just a very opportunistic thing. Some people were working on a plantation north of Tallahassee in Florida, and had they were mowing with a bush hog and had actually uh, destroyed a wild turkey nest. And anyway, I wound up with not only that nest, but another nest as well that they had uh, destroyed. So I Mm -hmm. had two clutches of eggs. And so I immediately started incubating the eggs, of course, so they wouldn't die. Right. And started the permitting process almost simultaneously. It's against the law to possess uh, game animals in most states. Right. So you do have to uh, have some sort of uh, documentation and go through a permitting process and demonstrate that you're capable of, you know, being a suitable parent to a certain kind of animal. Yeah. And you grew up hunting turkeys with your dad. Is that correct? I I sure did. I grew up in a turkey hunting culture in that part of North Florida, and uh, my father was a turkey hunter, and his close friends were, and uh, and I, I, I feel like I was very lucky because you know, this this culture was you know, a great bunch of guys. They were highly ethical people and mm-hmm. believed in ethical hunting and, you know, never taking advantage of an opportunity to be greedy or to kill an animal unnecessarily. Or, but anyway, I, you know, I felt like I really learned the right way to hunt and actually became pretty proficient at it. And, of yeah. course, when I started hunting, very few people hunted wild turkeys. And, and, and mostly mm-hmm. it was just opportunistic encounters when people were deer hunting or squirrel hunting, and, and they would shoot at turkey. Right. But there weren't many hardcore turkey hunters, and I happened to be born in a place at a time where there there were a few. So, yeah, yeah, I was real lucky in that way. Did the fact that you grew up hunting turkeys, did that 
spark some interest in you in wanting to imprint turkeys at some point? Absolutely. Anyone who hunts turkeys <laughs> knows that <laughs> uh, they're at least suspicious that turkeys may be smarter than all of us. I mean, you know, they're profoundly intelligent, and, and, and of course turkeys have this reputation of being incredibly stupid and uh, but right. any turkey hunter knows that it's just the opposite that there there's nothing in the forest uh, more clever than a wild turkey and more wary and 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 of course I grew up understanding that and so you know as as I matured and and started working more directly and, and working seriously, uh, making observations on different animals. I always knew that turkeys would be a fantastic experiment. And mm-hmm. I wanted to get my hands on some wild turkey eggs and do that very thing. And, uh, you know, it was just very uh, fortuitous that they uh, almost literally fell in my lap. Yeah, I think that anyone who spends time in the woods hunting turkeys knows that the turkeys are smarter than we are. <laughs> At what they do. There's no question about it, you know, and and that that was probably the most profound revelation in the in the whole two year study. Uh, you know, I felt like uh, you know, as soon as we got into the woods, which was daylight to dark every day for two years, basically. But mm-hmm. as soon as we got into their world, I realized that in on a certain level, I was with a superior creature. They they knew more. They understood more about the ecology, and they do. They understand the ecology. They're born with that information, and it's incredibly complete. You know, they know every species of insect. They know every species of snake. They have specific vocalizations for different snakes. Can you imagine? Yeah. And so that was an, an incredible revelation to realize that uh, you know that I tr- I was truly learning from these creatures that, uh, in, in a very real sense, they were vastly superior to me. And, and not only in their understanding of the landscape, but also their sensitivity, their awareness. And as I go into some detail in the book about their consciousness, uh, you know, people are a little bit nervous about using the term consciousness, but we shouldn't be. If, if we want to define consciousness as, a, as being awake on this planet, being aware of where you are, who you are, the time and space that you live in, well, there's nothing more conscious than a wild turkey. Mm-hmm. And it's very evident in the book. And it really, you know, I guess is even more so because the book takes place over two years. The television show is two years worth of information or two years worth of time crammed into 53 minutes. Right. But it really is evident that what you just said, that the turkeys, from the time they're hatched, they know everything that they need to know to survive, and you just seem to be more or less their tour guide. That's, that's a good way to put it. That's right. You know, and, I, and, and to some degree, they're protector. Young mm-hmm. wild turkeys are incredibly vulnerable to predation. And most wild turkeys are killed within the first two weeks of life, mm-hmm. the overwhelming majority. And so, yes, and so even though I lost quite a few turkeys to uh, predation and uh, a couple of to a couple to mysterious illnesses I still had a higher success than the turkeys would have had on their own or, or with another right. turkey because I was able to protect them to some degree and and I knew places not to go and uh, you know places that would uh, be better ecology for young turkeys. Yeah, and I'm skipping around in my questions because we're hitting things that are are leading to these questions, some segues into different questions. So I've got a question on here. You mentioned 
you knew to keep the turkeys away from certain places and take them to other places, such as food sources and water sources and that type of thing. But talking about places that turkeys really feel comfortable in, and you, you mentioned that in the book, and the place where the turkeys seem to just really relax and feel comfortable and loath to use the word, was Burt's Branch. Yeah. And what was it about Burt's Branch, do you think, that was so attractive to the turkeys? Well, that's a, that's a really interesting question. And I've observed this phenomenon, and I guess maybe I've referred to it in the book, at least indirectly, as a, as a sense of place. And mm-hmm. that the wild turkeys, clearly, they would come into a specific location, and it would have a, an effect on them. And I could see that the, the location itself was bringing them some sort of pleasure or satisfaction. And they would relax, and they would want to be there. And, and then, as time went on, I would realize that these, the birds would actually want to revisit those spots and would anticipate those spots by eagerly running to the spot, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. leaving me behind, and run ahead up to the spot that they were anticipating. And it was as if they had an aesthetic sense that they loved being in a, in, a, in a certain place, and it brought them satisfaction. Well, isn't that what we experience you know, when we're by a river or we're at the seashore or, you know, we're in a beautiful mountain mm-hmm. valley, and, you know, we've got the lush greenery around us, we've got the river flowing below, and we've got the, the mountains surrounding us. And, and that suggests to us biologically that we're in a place of abundance, uh, it's a place that will sustain us and meet our needs. And perhaps even we're in a location where we can see dis- danger coming from a distance. And so we have the sense of safety and satisfaction. And and I think that's what the what the wild turkeys were experiencing. And it's, you know, it's very similar to our reaction. You know, we think we have this admiration and love for the beauty of nature, when in reality what we're experiencing is an, a landscape that is offering us everything we need. It's showing us this incredible diversity and abundance. Yeah. And, uh, and, and that may be where that sense of beauty comes from in humans, is we're looking at a landscape that simply uh, will meet our needs. And that's mm-hmm. what makes us feel good. We like it. You know, we, we like being in those ecologies where we can say, wow, I can live here. And, right. uh, and I think that's what the turkeys were doing, you know, is that we have this very similar experience. And, and that's not being anthropomorphic. That's, I think that's fundamentally a biological, organic response to the landscape. Yeah. Were there other places around the farm there where the turkeys seemed to gravitate other than Burt's Branch that you, I mean, it seemed like probably the field? Yeah, there were different places where they seemed to uh, exhibit that same response. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there were different places. And, you know, uh, I, I have observed this uh, in, uh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm working with deer now, for example, and, and they have that same sense. Uh, deer have, they bed in particular places, and mm-hmm. they use these beds over and over, and actually you can find beds that may be at least hundreds of years old. They're, they're used over and over again, and invariably, if you will stop and you'll look and you see the, the spot that not only this deer has chosen, but many deer over decades or even hundreds of years, you see, wow, this is a profoundly beautiful spot. And yeah. so, and you can't help but uh, suspect that, well, these, these animals have a sense of aesthetics. Well, mm-hmm. it's that same phenomenon. You know, this, it appears beautiful to, to us because we see abundance all around us, and it affords us uh, shelter, maybe from the wind, maybe from the cold. 
And it also maybe affords us a view of predators coming in the distance. Right. Yeah, that was something that I found very interesting in the book because it seemed to have rained a good bit that late spring and summer when the turkeys were young. Well, it was North and Florida. Yeah, yeah, a good bit of rain, huh? Yeah, every day. Yeah, and, but I noticed that you took note of the turkeys seeking shelter underneath trees mm-hmm. to avoid the being out in the rain and getting soaking wet and that right. type of thing. I, I thought that was pretty interesting because I have noted that myself mm-hmm. being in the woods hunting and you see turkeys out in a field and it starts to rain and then they start to move off and next thing you know, they're standing underneath the only tree in the field. Right. Yeah, just you know, and certain trees especially uh, actually produce a rain shadow and conifers in particular, you know, the way their limbs are arranged and uh, the way their needles yeah. are arranged, the, the water tends to actually shed out towards the periphery, the perimeter of the tree. Conifers in the mountains, uh, you know, they're almost like a perfect umbrella. You can be yeah. in a pretty severe rainstorm and you can get under one of these big conifers and it is completely dry under there, at least for, for a while. Of course, you run the mm-hmm. risk of being struck by lightning, so there's that trade-off. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's a pretty serious trade-off. <laughs> well, and going back to the places where the turkeys felt comfortable, there were certain areas where they seemed to have encountered danger a good bit. For example, in the book was the log pile where there seemed to be more than one rather large rattlesnake mm-hmm. residing. And the turkeys at least seemed to be, according to your description, very cautious when, when you guys would approach that area. If you didn't lead them by that area, do you think that they would avoid it altogether? Well, there's there's two answers to that question, which I guess means that, that I don't know the answer clearly, but uh, there were two responses that I observed, and one was that there were very cautious and and were hesitant to approach the site because they anticipated the rattlesnake being there and mm-hmm. other predators too, by the way, in different places. But also, what I observed was that they had an overwhelming need. I assume that was a need to know not only to demonstrate that the rattlesnake was in fact there, but to know specifically where it was because once they knew where it was, then every place else was safe. And okay. so they were hesitant to, hesitant to approach the old rotten log pile where these rattlesnakes tended to congregate. But what they wanted to do was to find that rattlesnake as quickly as they could. And then, once they had located it, then they were good to go. You know, they could right. look for grasshoppers or, or do whatever turkeys do and not have to worry that they were going to get too close. And so, and so they would. They would just diligently hunt for that rattlesnake until they found it. And then they made their, their specific rattlesnake vocalization totally different than any other snake vocalization. I, I would always know without question that they had found a rattlesnake or the rattlesnake. Mm-hmm. And they would examine it very carefully, and everybody would gather around, and everyone would acknowledge that, okay, there he is, laying up there quietly. And then they would slowly start browsing away. And they were very comfortable then. that They knew they, had, they found him, they knew where he was, and he was no longer a threat. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Towards the end of the book, Claudia was doing her jog around the field or walk around the field, and some sort of a predator had gotten after Turkey Boy. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned from that point that, you know, he was very hesitant to go in that area where that where that predator attack took place or very cautious around that area. Yeah, that's another, so, another example, right? Yeah, and I, I think that's something that probably us hunters can take and put in our back pocket because if you hunt out of a blind in the same location 
day after day or year after year, the turkeys are going to get used to that and they're going to be very cautious trying to come to another turkey call in that area, I would think. Sure. Well, there's no question that they make associations with danger, and you're absolutely right. You know, I think, uh, you know, if you were hunting from the same location uh, year in and year out, it, well, and everyone knows, you know, if you if you call up a, a gobbler in the spring and, and you, for whatever reason, you know, you fail to take the gobbler and you get busted, as they say, you know, he finds you there and he gets scared and he runs off and flies off, well, he'll never forget that. Mm-hmm. And so you may call up another turkey to that spot. You may even lure that turkey in within 50 or 75 or 100 yards, and he might stand out there and gobble all morning. But he's going to be, without question, he's going to be wary of that site. No question yeah. about it. He will never forget that. Yeah. My observation from reading the book is that they seem to have quite a long-term memory. It's impeccable. It is absolutely okay. impeccable. You know, and I, I, I just saw that demonstrated over and over and over again. Had an experience somewhere that there was a specific association with that site. Uh, food is another classic example. You know, uh, while turkeys know that they're blackberries at a specific low, remote, obscure location, they will always remember that there are blackberries in that location, and they will seek it out when blackberries are in season. Sadly, that if people want to bait wild turkeys, of course, and once you've baited a site. Even when you quit putting the bait out, and they're going to come back. You know, a year later, you know, if they if they found corn there in the fall, a year later when they're in that area, they're they're absolutely going to revisit that site. Two years yeah. later, they're absolutely going to revisit that site. Now they they're not going to come to it every day, but they sure. but they will reappear just to make sure. Yeah, there's a lot of mention in the book about the color of your clothing, mm-hmm. and. At times, that was an issue with the turkey, and you mentioned that bright blue and purple were very bothersome colors for the turkeys. Were there any other colors that you found that were bothersome, and do you think that some of the distaste for your clothing color choice was due to your status with them and that they looked at you like their mother? Um, I don't know if it was, you know, status would be the word that I would use, but, uh, you know, they expected me to conform to a certain expectation, and that expectation was what they had experienced in the past. You know, I wore, wore a certain kind of okay. boots, uh, wore a pair of jeans, I wore a pale blue t-shirt, and, and I found that if I wore anything else, it was very troubling to them. Well, birds in general are very sensitive to colors. Mm-hmm. And and so uh, various colors can be very disturbing. The violet end of the spectrum was very disturbing to wild turkey, and, and I'm not sure of all the reasons. But you know, the the violet on a turkey gobbler's head uh, is maybe attractive to a hen, but it, it, at the very least, it is extremely aggressive towards another gobbler. And you know, when, when they become excited in the presence of another adult gobbler, those colors become incredibly vivid. And and it's pure aggression, and mm-hmm. and so that was always my suspicion that those those violet type colors uh, are are supposed to be troubling to a wild turkey. In my case, uh, you know, I, it was not like I, I would come out with a a red or a purple T-shirt on one day. You know, I wore a pale blue T-shirt, which I thought uh, sort of emulated the color of a turkey hen's head. And now I didn't do that intentionally. It was just an observation that I made later on. Mm-hmm. And so it was sort of a neutral color to a young wild turkey. You know, it denoted something that was okay, at least okay. But you know, I could put on a khaki shirt, and they found it very troubling. You know, that mom was uh, 
not, you know, something was wrong with my plumage. Something was seriously wrong, and they would literally try to pull that thing off of me. Yeah. And I'd have four or five of those. Well, not just young turkeys, but even older turkeys that would literally be pulling on that article of clothing, trying to get it off me, because they knew it didn't mm-hmm. belong. Then I would go in and put on, you know, one of my uniforms, my little <laughs> you know, pale blue T-shirt, and they were just fine. So clearly, uh, you know, there was something interesting going on there. Do you think that the reason they didn't like the khaki is because it just wasn't the light blue and what they were used to seeing you in? Yes, yes. Okay. Yes, it just uh, was not what they expected, you know. They had yeah. an expectation that I was supposed to satisfy every day. And, you know, and that involved all sorts of things, you know, the... Uh, you know, was not allowed to carry extraneous things with me, for example. You know, I had a little uh, army surplus, sort of a day pack thing that I wore, and they knew that from birth. But, uh, for example, I couldn't carry a video camera in my hand, walk along. You know, they would mm-hmm. be so obsessed, not afraid, just obsessed with this weird thing that I had in my hand that they would just stop being wild turkeys and just obsess over the thing. And so, mm-hmm. I, you know, I couldn't film natural wild turkey behavior because they were obsessed with a video camera. Right. And uh, and in the case of the, you know, making film, they were introduced to the camera from birth. And so mm-hmm. it was just another object in their environment and part of their expectation of what the world was supposed to look like. Yeah, that's all very interesting. Well, you mentioned very often in the book about your communication with the turkeys and their communication with one another. And you mentioned it a few minutes ago in the interview as well about all of their different calls and that they had a call that was really specific for rattlesnakes compared to any other snake. We all know that turkeys have quite the vocabulary and that they have a lot of different calls that they make. But did you really see a lot of variation in the calling and the communication as far as their low, quiet calls compared to the yelps where they're trying to reach out over a distance and sure. you know was that was it more or less communication within the flock that you were exposed to primarily well i never um, hear all of it and uh if you're with a flock of wild turkeys they are incredibly vocal they are loquacious and they mm-hmm. are there's never a time when they're not making noise and they're little faint trills uh contented mm-hmm. little trills that you can't hear from 20 yards away. You can't hear maybe from 10 yards away. You literally have to be with them to hear this. And it, it sounds very contented. And so in that sense, it's a reassurance to every other turkey that everything's okay. Because the, the type of habitat that especially young turkeys are in, you know, you know it's usually, usually pretty thick, brushy, grassy. And right. so even though they can't see each other, even from 10 yards away, they can hear this contented vocalization. And, and, and in essence, what it's saying is, here I am, and everything's okay. So everybody's saying, here I am, and from my perspective, everything's okay. And so there's just a consensus that everything's okay. Mm-hmm. In the minute one of those circuits makes a different vocalization, like a little alarm putt, for example, then everybody scatters, everybody bursts into flight. It's instantaneous, no questions asked. But what I found that was so interesting, I think uh, Lovett Williams, you know, he really explored wild turkey vocabulary, and you can buy his uh, CDs. Right. He really researched that in detail, and, and I think Lovett, well, that's been a long time, but, I, but I, if I'm not mistaken, he identified something like 35 different specific calls, calls that could be differentiated. That's a lot. Mm, it is. And what I found by being in, in such close proximity to these turkeys, basically 24 hours a day, was that within each one of those calls, there's sort of a subtext of modified calls. And so there's 
a thing that I called an alarm purr, and it's mm-hmm. uh, when you hear it, it's unmistakable. And probably every turkey hunter has heard some version of that when they get discovered by the gobbler, and they make uh, a certain kind of little alarm noise, and then turn around and run away. Yeah. And 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 that's a not only a call, that's a, a classification call. And so what I found was within that alarm purr, that and they're gone. Well, within that classification, there might be 10 subcategories of that call that denote different levels of alarm and, mm-hmm. and possibly even may make reference to the, the source of the uh, of the danger. And in the case of the snakes, uh, you know, that, that's an alarm call that they make, alarm per alarm putt, and, but yet it's very specific. And so if they found a rat snake, I could tell it. If they had found a, a, a black racer, I knew it. And and when they found a rattlesnake, there was absolutely no question. And, by the way, they were never wrong. They never made mistakes. Yeah. And that was phenomenal because, you know, I'd walked through those woods for more than a decade, uh, basically every day. You know, I lived in that area down there. Mm-hmm. And I spent my time in the woods. And I would see a rattlesnake now and then. And I knew they were there. And, uh, you know, occasionally I would see one. But with the turkeys, I was seeing two or three every single day. And I realized yeah. these snakes were abundant. They were kind of everywhere. Fortunately, they hang out in places where you don't walk. You know, they get up into the rotten log pile or into real thick blackberries or, you know, whatever the cover is. And so, right. and that's what, and that's the way they hunt. You know, they're not, they, they employ stealth. They're not out there aggressively seeking out predators. They lay there yeah. quietly day after day after day and hope the cotton rat or the, or the cottontail rabbit wanders by. And that's, right. that's your feeding strategy. And so fortunately, they stay out of their way, but they're there. They're abundant. And until I, I started spending time with these wild turkeys, I had no idea. But they had this almost uh, supernatural ability. And I would, uh, I would have six, eight, ten turkeys gathered around in a circle, looking directly down into some thick brush or grass, making the alarm call that I recognized as a rattlesnake. So I knew 100% certain that there was a rattlesnake there, and it was within 24 inches of these turkeys that were encircling it. And I would go there, and I could not see that rattlesnake. And I would hunt, and I would hunt, and I would hunt, and I couldn't see it. And yet the turkeys knew without question. You know, and then finally, you know, I might get a stick and part some grass or something, and sure enough, there wouldn't be just a rattlesnake, but a great big old rattlesnake. Right. And, uh, so it was, it was amazing, you know, their, their perception about these things. And, you know, the, they, without question, they have a uh, sort of this blueprint in their brain that can see the, the color patterns on a diamondback rattlesnake that are actually meant to conceal them. But that pattern jumps out at a wild turkey. Uh, to us, mm-hmm. it causes them to sort of disappear. It's perfect camouflage. But to a wild turkey, it's a red flag. Yeah, it's like they're wearing hunter orange, huh? Yeah. That's crazy. Well, in recalling the day when you and the turkeys were in Burps Branch and the turkeys met the resident wild turkeys in the hammock for the Mm -hmm. first time, were you at all fearful at that point that you may lose the turkeys with them joining the other flock, or were you pretty confident confident they were going to come back and yeah, when be with that you? first event, you know, they were still young enough where they needed to be in my presence at all times. They were still insecure. Yeah, you know, and that changed. You know, at twelve weeks, fourteen weeks, sixteen weeks, that all changes. You know, basically the hen just becomes another member of the group. She's no longer in charge. Mm-hmm. But that first encounter, they were still fairly young. 
and uh, you know they looked you know from a distance they would appear like grown turkeys, but they but they weren't they were they were juvenile and and so no it was just a real fascinating encounter and we've been encountering wild turkeys every day through the whole experience from the very beginning and of course yeah. because they're wild turkeys and because I was a human being they were terrified you know every time we would encounter these turkeys I I would always ruin the moment just mm-hmm. by being person well. Them being wild turkeys, one of the characteristics of a wild turkey is they're profoundly curious. And that may be something that maybe hunters aren't so aware of, that they are obsessively curious about everything in their environment. And they pay attention, and they want to know. And it it serves them, there's a survival need for them to know everything in their environment. Ignorance is not a good survival strategy. And so sooner or later, they're going to explore everything. So if you go out there in the woods and cut down a tree and remove uh, the wood for firewood, you can be certain that within 48 hours, there's going to be a wild turkey standing on that stump trying mm-hmm. to understand why it's there and what happened. And they're just very curious like that. And so what happened over a course of many weeks was the resident wild turkeys became more or less obsessed with me. And as, as my turkeys got bigger, they became more conspicuous, and a lot of times they would be out front. And so there would be this momentary interaction with my turkeys and the resident wild turkeys. Then, of course, they would see me and they would run. Well, over time, they finally realized that for whatever strange reason, this person, this human, was, was with these turkeys, so he must not be too dangerous. And so gradually over the time, over time, the resident wild turkeys' curiosity finally got greater than their fear of me. Mm-hmm. And one day we were in the woods, an open longleaf pine stand with just nothing but pine needles on the ground and you know a few gallberries and scattered palmettos, but it was open. So these turkeys, there's no question they knew I was there. But I'm sitting down, and, and basically they said, okay, we can't stand this. We've got to know. We've got to meet these turkeys. That's what wild turkeys do. You know, they, they, they want to know the other groups of turkeys in the area or individuals. So they came in, and of course a fight broke out because the males, right. you know, they're very competitive. And uh, so quite an enormous fight broke out, and it caused turkeys to sort of disappear in the distance. Eventually they all came running back to me, and some of them were actually bleeding. Mm-hmm. And a pretty pretty good scrap with these uh, with these resident wild turkeys. Yeah, another thing that I thought was truly fascinating is the day when the turkeys decided they were not going back in the pen, mm-hmm. and to me it just kind of proves that they've got their own language, they've got their own vocabulary, their own form of communication, mm-hmm. and. I think you might have mentioned it in the book, that it was like they'd all just kind of huddled up at some point in time and said, we're not going back in the pen. We're going to roost in the trees outside the pen tonight. Yep. You know, I don't know that they articulated it like that, but there, there certainly was a consensus. And, that, you know, we approached that pen, which was in the woods, surrounded by a huge loblolly and native slash pines and big hardwoods, and, and something was different. And it was like there was a consensus that we're, mm-hmm. we're grown up now. We don't need this pen. And, of course, I was looking forward to that day. I, I always disapproved of that pen. It was just a necessity at night keep them alive. Right. But they had decided, okay, we're not going in that pen tonight. And they sort of wandered around until it got on late in the evening and the sun hits up. And then gradually they all started flying up on the roof. And uh, it was a, an amazing moment. And uh, they yeah. had decided this. And, okay, we're going to be... We're going to be adult wild turkeys now and start behaving like we're supposed to. We don't. They knew they didn't belong in that pen, and they would look up and they would go, "It's time to roost. That's where we belong." Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was- it also is pretty interesting to me that throughout the time period when the turkeys were with you, they never seemed to really be bothered by the pen, though they were never seemed to be really afraid to go in and never. have that 
uh, you know, they they had to have felt that sense of captivity within that pen. Well, that's interesting, and but you're right, absolutely right. They never learned to dread that pen, and and I think the reason was that you know every morning, almost without exception, I was out there before daylight when they were still up on the roost, mm-hmm. and they would fly down off the roost, and the door of the pen would be open. And as soon as the last one hit the ground, we would walk out and off we would go and we would never see that pen again the rest of the day. And then at night we would come in just before dark and I would walk straight in the pen and of course there were roosting limbs up in the corner of the pen and I would stand there on the roosting limbs, stand by the roosting limbs and they would all fly up around me and huddle up close and start nodding off after it got dark. And as soon as they got quiet and literally were falling asleep, I would have to sneak very quietly out of the pen. If I didn't do that, they would literally jump down on the ground in the dark and try to follow me. Uh, and uh, and that, that was a, not a good thing because the weasels, which I had never laid eyes on in all the years that I had lived down there, well, guess what? There are weasels. And uh, mm-hmm. and if turkey gets on the ground at night, they will be killed. And I had, yeah. I had a turkey killed, and so I realized that I had to stay out there until after it got completely dark, and I had to sneak out of the den and observe and make sure that none of them flew down and tried to follow me. But my point is that they never learned that sense of, you know, we need to be out because we're little wild turkeys. We don't belong in a pen. They, they, they didn't have that experience. They were, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they were out of there at daylight and they were back in at dark. So they never learned to dread that place. Yeah. You mentioned that if the turkeys heard or saw you sneaking out of the pen that they would fly down and try to follow you out at night. Mm-hmm. I've always heard that they do not see very well at night. Is that your observation in living with them? Well, I didn't make that observation, and I, I, I really didn't have opportunities to test that. Um, you know, I know that, well, as every turkey hunter knows, that turkeys fly off the roost long before sunrise. And, mm-hmm. you know, the time varies, but, you know, they'll start flying off the roost before you can really see. Mm-hmm. And that suggests to me that, uh, you know, if they're on a hardwood hammock, for example, you know, and they're literally flying through the, not over the canopy, but through the hardwoods, and they would have to see pretty good to be able to do that, I would, I would think. But I, but I never had any, any way of really testing how good their vision is at night, but that's a, that's a good question. Yeah. Uh, I have, as a hunter, pretty fanatic when I was a kid, and if I roosted a turkey the night before, I'd be up at 4 o'clock in the morning, and I would be sneaking through the woods in the absolute dark, and on many occasions, I would literally manage to be underneath that tree that I saw that turkey roost in by the time the sun rose. So, mm. you know, does that suggest that maybe they, certainly they could hear me, but of course, you know, the, if you've been in the woods at night, particularly in the in the south, it's a very noisy place. You know, there are things walking around everywhere. That's when everything's active. You know, and a right. couple of armadillos and a possum, you know, sound like an army walking through the woods. Yeah. So, but anyway, uh, you know, certainly uh, they would. They didn't know that I was a human. I would suggest that because I have flushed, and we all have. You know, we flush turkeys out of the trees in the dark. You're walking mm-hmm. in the woods to go hunting, and, you know, you bust right into a flock of turkeys or, a, you know, a gobbler that went up there the night before, and they fly out in the dark, and uh, they seem to do pretty good. Right. So. Yeah. Well, tell us a little bit about what you're working on now. I know you you went from your experiment with the turkeys to... Sheep. Yeah. Big horn, was it bighorn sheep? Yeah, Is that right? I started working okay. with the, the largest herd of bighorn sheep in North America, the Whiskey Mountain herd, and uh, off and on for about 
six or seven years. And I, I would go up in the spring and living at about 11,000 feet. And I would go up in the spring and stay there until fall, living out of a backpacking tent, just observing these herds. And we were trying to determine uh, why the lamb survival was so low. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was working for the state of Wyoming then. And then uh, I started working with mule deer about nine years ago now. And your listeners might want to know that uh, as I'm standing here outside, uh, I'm scratching a mule deer between her ears, which they love. And this is a deer that I've known since she was born. And she's, she's about three years old now, and she's, she's got a, a baby out there. She's got a little spotted fawn. It's about 10 weeks old. But anyway, I've, uh, I've been living with this herd of mule deer, about 50 individuals, and doing this for nine years now, and just have gotten embedded in this herd, and they, they think I'm another mule deer, I suppose. Yeah. I've written a book about that, and PBS made a documentary called Touching the Wild, and the book is entitled Touching the Wild. And it came out a couple yeah. of years ago, but the research is, is still ongoing. So uh, I'm still working with these deer every day. Uh, it's like the turkeys, it's before daylight till after dark, much of the time. Right. So. Yeah. And what is it exactly that you're researching with a mule deer? Well, it's, ethology is the study of a wild animal in its natural habitat. In other words, you know, it's not restrained, it's not an enclosure. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are not animals that, well, I have actually raised some provence, but for the most part, they're completely wild deer that have come to accept me gradually over time. And, you know, I'll habituate a doe, make her relatively comfortable, and then when she has fawn, the fawn just assumes that I'm, I'm part of the landscape, and so the fawn is more comfortable, and when that fawn grows up, its fawn is even more comfortable. So now, mm-hmm. after 10 generations, I'm just... I'm just one of the deer, and it's just incredible, privileged insight. And in ethology, you're just trying to understand the nuances and subtleties of animal behavior. And uh, and so, you know, I've got a, I'm like a family member. And so these deer have revealed things to me that maybe other people haven't observed, and if they have, they haven't written about it. And, yeah. uh, and then, and like all living things, uh, you know, the closer you look, they don't become more simple. They become more complex. And these animals, mule deer, are profoundly intelligent creatures. They've got an incredible social life, very complex society, and they're they're sort of identified by their by their thoughtfulness. They're not a reactive animal. They they live in a complex environment, and so they they've never been able to employ specific responses to predictable stimuli. And so they uh, they're out there thinking about things. You know, they have to negotiate and navigate to a incredibly complex world and so they have to employ reason to actually uh, survive so the mule deer in particular is just a profoundly intelligent animal and you know nothing reflected in their social organization and in fact they uh, employ uh, learning and teaching and so they their society is literally uh, passed on by learning and not through it's not informed instinctively mule deer have Mm -hmm. to learn how to be a mule deer from another more experienced deer. And so in that right. sense, it bears a similarity the definition of culture. You know, that society has passed on through learning. And, you know, there are certainly other species besides humans that have this tradition of passing on knowledge. But mule deer yeah. certainly do that. It's fascinating stuff. Yeah, it's fascinating. And you know, like so many living things, you know, the, the intricacies, the complexity, it's just almost overwhelming. And so the more time you spend with them, the more you learn there's no end to it. And so literally, uh, you know, I wrote the book. I finished the, the research for the book three years ago. Well, I've been doing this. So in in the three years that's followed, I, I've just learned a tremendous 
amount about their social life and how, how complex it is. And so I'm actually adding a, a new chapter to the new edition of the book just because the findings so, you know, It's just been amazing what's been revealed just in the last couple of years. Well, I haven't read the Mule Deer book, but it is on the list, so I will probably wait until the new release comes out so I can get the new chapter. Yep. Well, and, hopefully uh, it'll, it'll be out in the, in the fall. Okay. Yep. And who's the publisher of that one? That is Skyhorse Publishing. That's right. In New York. Okay. Mm-hmm. I remember saying that now that you said that. Yep. So, okay. And, uh, Skyhorse was formerly Lions Press and then Lions and Burford before that, and they're actually the publisher that uh, published the, the turkey book, Elimination. Elimination, yeah. Okay. Well, Joe, thank you again. I really appreciate your time today and getting to pick your brain a little bit more about the book and the experience that you had with the turkeys. And I know that all of the people who will listen to this show can greatly appreciate what you did with your experiment and with writing the book and sharing your story with us. You know, we're we're all hunters of turkey, but we are all admirers of the species and Absolutely. have just the utmost respect for not just the wild turkey, but any of the animals that we yeah. that we hunt. That's the wonderful thing about turkey hunting in particular, is that in order to be a successful turkey hunter, you really have to learn something about the landscape and about that animal that lives in that landscape. And, uh, and you can't do Very that true. without learning to love both of those things. And, and Very so true. That's a, you know, that, that's the real beauty of it. And that's a, that's, there's, a, there's kind of magic in that. Unless you've been Absolutely. out there on a frosty spring morning, you know, and heard a, a gobbler doing what he does, and you're actually carrying on a conversation with that gobbler. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's impossible to describe that experience to a human being who has not been there. It is. It is transformative. It is. People look at me like I'm a complete idiot when I try to explain that to <laughs> yeah, them because well, I, there is that's how I've just made my no living is uh, you know behaving like a complete idiot. <laughs> I absolutely <laughs> understand. <laughs> well, you know, there's always that sense of sorrow kind of embedded deep in the excitement of harvesting a turkey, in that you know that tomorrow morning that little piece of woods is going to be quiet. Mm-hmm. There is that, you know, and that's an important part of the experience. You know, there's a very important lesson to be learned in, in that, and that we're doing something that, you know, Native Americans, for example, and hunting societies all over the world, uh, they didn't rejoice in killing an animal. They considered mm-hmm. it a sacred act, and right. I absolutely understand that. Yeah, well, thank you again. I really do appreciate it, and I will keep you on my list. I may hit you up again to pick your brain a little bit more about turkeys and just talk a little bit more about the behavior and that kind of thing yeah. than, well, I'd than we did this time. Well, I'd be happy to do that anytime, and, and I thank you so much, and I appreciate people who are listening. Well, I enjoy we, sharing this we, with people. Yeah, well, and we, we thank you for what you did, for sure, because it's been a real learning experience, and you know, it's something that, like I said, I can turn back to and read a countless number of times because every time I read it, I pick something up new, and that's always exciting. Well, so you know, that's the, you know, the, the learning never stops, and that's a wonderful thing about the natural world and in general, and wild turkeys in particular. You know, as soon as you think you know everything you need to know about a, a wild turkey, they're going to make a fool of you. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> yes, indeed. So that's that's why we get up and, and keep going out there. Yep, I seem to, you know, I uh, seem to enjoy being made a fool of, so <laughs> I keep doing it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Joe, I'm going to let you get on with your evening, okay, and well, I hope you, so you have much. a great one. You too. And I appreciate it. Hope to talk to you again soon. You bet. Bye-bye. All right, goodbye. 
Hey, I hope you enjoyed the interview. Listen, before we wrap up, I want to share with you what I feel like is something that is very interesting. Before I started the interview with Joe, he and I were chatting, and we got on the topic of the documentary. And he shared some insight about the documentary that I felt like was very interesting, and I want to share that with you guys. So I'm going to play it for you now. It doesn't really tie into the interview, so I wanted to kind of break that up. Just consider this a P.S. from Joe. And listening to this part, I'll catch you on the back end of this, and we'll wrap things up. Like I told you when we first talked, I've read the book probably four or five times even before now. Mm-hmm. So now I'm, I'm five or six times. And until I started doing some research to try to find you, I never even knew about the documentary, My Life as a Turkey oh, on really? PBS. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, and, you know, I hate that I missed it, but I actually watched it today. Oh, you and, did? Uh, yeah, I sure did. Yeah. And well, I enjoyed you did, that. You recognize there were two different turkey guys there, right? Yes. Jeff Palmer played me, and then of course it was me in the interviews. But when you saw the guy out in the field with the turkeys, that was Jeff. And right. Com- and now, did Jeff imprint those turkeys? It was a complete replication of what I did. It, it was not a reenactment. It was a complete replication. I got the state of Florida involved, and in fact, it was you know one of the last things that Lovett Williams really got involved in. Yeah. Uh, he and David Austin were the ones that put radio transmitters on on hens so uh, we could collect the eggs when they started nesting. Okay. And, uh, yeah, so they did the whole thing. They got the egg. Jeff, you know, did the vocalizations of the eggs just like I did. They hatched. And, of course, I was scared to death because, you know, there's nothing more frightening to a scientist than having somebody replicate your work. Right. (laughs) You know, and so I thought, my God, you know, what if if these little turkeys don't do the things that I observed? What if Mm -hmm. I exaggerated something? What if I just got something flat wrong? You know, I was was kind of sweating. And, you know, they filmed for 18 months. But, I mean, everything. They replicated everything that I talked about. It was just amazing. You may recall the I was sitting in the woods when the turkeys were very young and there was a hawk attack mm-hmm. right at my feet. Right. They recreated that. I mean, they made that happen again. He was out there in the woods and they had somebody with a, uh, you know, a hawk wrangler. And, mm-hmm. uh, and it didn't make it into the film, sadly. But, I mean, it was it, it did in the British version. In the European version, they left it in because those shows are a little longer. But uh, it was amazing. I mean, they, they actually made that happen again. And I wondered about that because one of the reviews on YouTube, which I always read for entertainment's sake, mm-hmm. just to get a good laugh because mm-hmm. the reviews on there are quite ridiculous, but it's always funny. Mm-hmm. And one of the reviews mentioned the fact that during the documentary that they let a snake eat one of the polt turkeys and just like what happened in your book and the same thing with the hawk and but when i watched the show on pbs's website i didn't see the hawk yeah attack on the turkey yeah so. that's on the european version okay so they had to cut out five minutes and that's what they chose to cut out that hawk thing okay but yeah that's absolutely true and uh, they actually raised stunt turkeys they, huh. Jeff had, I don't know, 16, 18 eggs that he actually were going to be his study group. Mm-hmm. And then they had a graduate student raise about 12 more just in case some of Jeff died or, which they surely would, you know, that, that's part right. of the deal. They're, they're pretty fragile all animals. And, but anyway, that, they did not kill that, the snake did not kill that pole 
that was a, a poult that had died. Okay. And they, uh, you know, and that was, they had a snake wrangler with several different right. kinds of, you know, you saw indigo snake, a big rattlesnake, mm-hmm. you know, quite a few, but several of those snakes uh, were actually brought in by the by the snake handler, the herpetologist. And anyway, that, that sequence was one of the stunt poults had died for whatever reason. And okay. uh, anyway, he said, oh, this rat snake hasn't eaten in two weeks. I bet he'll eat this poult, and it did. And that's how that wow. came about. Yeah. That's all pretty interesting. Yeah, it was amazing. And, and I, I thought they did a really good job with the documentary up until the last part when they were talking about Turkey Boy. Mm-hmm. And the book, right after Turkey Boy attacked you, that was not the last time you had seen that's Turkey right. Boy. But in the documentary, that's what how they edited that. Yeah, so. you know, they just had to... You know, to turn cut it short. two years of experience in, in a whole book into a 55-minute documentary. That's tough. You know, a lot of things were really abbreviated. But, yeah, yeah. they just yeah. said, okay, that's, you know, that's the way we're going to end it. He beats the hell out of Joe, and <laughs> Joe hits him right. with a uh, pine bell. That really happened. And yeah. uh, and I ran him off. I mean, you know, I didn't think I'd ever see him again, and I, and I say that in the book. You know, I was just convinced that I would never see that bird again. And But he did show back up. But in the film, they just said, okay, he's going to run off, and that'll be the end of the story. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, but, you know, that's yeah. the filmmaking business. You, you've just got to you've got to create a narrative, and it's got to have a beginning, a middle, and the end, and they are not exactly. very far apart. Yeah, exactly. I thought they did a really good job with it. They, was, they did. That was interesting. Uh, you know, I was ready to be really disappointed with it because I, I just didn't see any way that they could do that. I, in fact, I told them. I said, you know, I don't, I don't want to shoot myself in the foot, but I don't think you can pull this off. I don't think it's possible. I could barely do it, and I was under ideal circumstance. You know, I didn't mm-hmm. have a five-man film crew hanging around and, you know, all that confusion and right. all those distractions, and I didn't know how those turkeys would react to that. Yeah. But anyway, it uh, obviously worked out really well. Yeah. Okay, so I was glad to hear more details about the turkeys that we didn't get in the book in this interview. And I'm very thankful to Joe for coming on the show and sharing his knowledge and his wisdom of wild turkeys as well as his experience with what he went through over that two-year period of time with these turkeys. As you can probably imagine, Joe does not turkey hunt anymore. He did turkey hunt quite a while, but having raised a flock of wild turkeys, they have a special place in his heart, and he just does not hunt them anymore. With that said, though, he is not anti-hunting. He understands the importance that hunting has in our environment, and that is part of the reason why he is so willing to share his experience with us. I was also glad that Joe reaffirmed many of the small things that I picked up from the book about wild turkey behavior. And if you listen close in the interview, Joe shares a lot of information that we turkey hunters can put into the bank and pull out during turkey season to help us have more success. Some of those things like how hunters who hunt out of a blind should take caution and should move the location of their blinds from time to time are pretty obvious in the interview. Other things are a little bit more subtle. You may want to go back and listen to the interview again to pick up on some of these things. Read the book if you haven't already. And if you have read it already, go back and reread it. There are so many subtleties in this book about wild turkey behavior that will help you have much more success in the turkey woods, but also help you have so much more respect 
for the animal than you already do. And most of us hunters have an unbelievable amount of respect for turkeys. And this book helps to strengthen that and grow that respect. So, as I mentioned, we can all learn a great deal about wild turkeys by reading the book and watching the documentary. I know that I learn new things each time that I pick the book up. And you guys, if you haven't read it already, are going to thoroughly enjoy it. So before I let you go, I want to read one more passage from the book. In the book, Joe says, For most of my life, I have observed, painted, drawn, hunted, read about, photographed, and generally studied the wild turkey. Entering this current relationship with so many preconceived notions, I did not expect to find that I had misunderstood so much. In spite of an enormous respect and admiration for the bird, I had managed to underestimate its complexity. That wild turkeys are clever and wily is a cliché among hunters and people who have had any experience with them. No one comes to terms with this phenomenon more often than the turkey hunter. A turkey's sensory ability clearly borders on the supernatural. I am astounded by the wild turkey's ability to determine distance and direction, and I have learned that a spring gobbler who answers my call from a quarter of a mile away needs no other sound from me. If he chooses to come, he will know almost exactly from what bush or tree trunk the call came. Even through dense terrain, I have had turkeys come on the run from such a distance and stop within 20 yards, then begin examining my exact location for the source of the yelp. Vision in wild turkeys, although very acute, as Lovett Williams points out, may be no better than human vision. Where wild turkeys excel is in their ability to detect movement. They apparently can discern, in a fully animated world, the smallest movement. A tiny flicker of motion 50 yards away gets their attention like a slap in the face. This ability seems especially developed in regard to motion overhead. I spend a large portion of my time with these young turkeys trying to figure out what they've just seen or heard. Often when I find out, I'm astonished. Hearing is acute in wild turkeys, although it's difficult to study. I do find, however, that sounds in general, although never ignored, may be tolerated, provided they do not have dangerous associations. The turkeys are perfectly comfortable with a chainsaw as long as it, like the noisy red-shouldered hawk, remains in the distance. I have experimented with odd noises sounded from a blind while photographing wild turkeys. Often, when exposed to the most ridiculous noises, a wild turkey will listen and attempt to observe the origin of the sound. If no alarming association can be made, he will gradually begin to ignore it. Wild turkeys can be very attentive to camera noises for a short time, but if the photographer is completely concealed, the sounds will eventually be ignored. One sure way to disturb or frighten wild turkeys, ironically, is with a turkey collar. They seem very limited in their tolerance for meaningless yelping. They usually regard the human voice as something to be feared as well. Everything that I have observed reading the sensory abilities of these imprinted wild turkeys has impressed me with how profound these attributes are. When in the turkey's presence, I feel dull and insensitive by comparison. Frequently, I experience genuine embarrassment as I have on occasion to make my ignorance and stupidity known to them in some way. Sometimes, I get collective looks that I can only interpret as incredulity. That should go to prove what we know to be true, and that is a turkey's senses are incredible. And, and that's one of the reasons that we have so much respect for the bird and one of the reasons why we enjoy hunting them so much. Although their brain is the size of a peanut, they are a very formidable opponent in the woods. 
because this has been such a long episode, I'm going to go ahead and end it now. I thank you guys very much for tuning in this week. I know that you have choices. I appreciate you spending your time with us. I hope you have a wonderful week, and I look forward to seeing you again next week. Goodbye. Thanks for tuning in. You were just listening to the Turkey Hunter podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please go on over to iTunes and leave a five-star review. And make sure to head over to www.iamturkeyhunting.com to subscribe for free turkey hunting tips, tactics, strategies, and product reviews to help you have a more successful turkey season. And stay tuned for upcoming episodes on hunting afternoon birds, how to film your hunt, and the breeding cycle of hens, as well as some guest interviews. Thanks again for listening. We know your time is valuable, and we appreciate you sharing some of it with us. See you next week.